0: Hello and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on LP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four brand new movies to review for you. Actually, three of them are brand new. One of them came out the previous weekend of uh, November 4th, 2022, but I didn't get a chance to review it until now. But I'm going to start with the newest film that is out in theaters right now, which if I did not get the chance to review this film for you for this show, I would probably kick myself. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Black Panda Wakanda Forever, which is the sequel, of course, to the 2018 film Black Panther and the 30th film overall in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there have been uh, three films that have been released in 2022 from the MCU. And the first two films that have been released this year have been somewhat lacking. For instance, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was the first MCU film to be released this year, and it was kind of all over the place in terms of plot. Thor Love and Thunder was a better film than Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but it was totally uneven and had a story that was kind of convoluted. Not to mention, it didn't do a very good uh, service to the female characters. So I was holding my breath, and I was sort of preparing for the worst for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. It has... Three major disadvantages. First of all, it comes out in a year where the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been showing some signs of exhaustion. Number two, it comes after the very auspicious Black Panther movie, which was not only a critical and fan favorite, but it was also the highest grossing film of 2018 internationally. And number three, probably what people thought would deter this movie from being great, is that the original Black Panther, the original King Chala, Chadwick Boseman, is now deceased. And the movie does not deny that that would probably set back the story of Black Panther, not to mention the story of Wakanda. And it gets right to the chase by having King T'Challa die of a disease that his sister Shuri, who's played by Letitia Wright, is trying to cure, but ultimately she is unsuccessful. And a year later, Wakanda has been under pressure from other countries, including the United States and many other Western developed countries, to share their vibranium, with some parties attempting to steal it by force. And the queen of Wakanda, Ramonda, who is reprised in this film by Angela Bassett, is trying to implore... Shuri to continue her research on the heart-shaped herb that could have saved King T'Challa, hoping to create a new Black Panther that will defend Wakanda. So it's important to note that this film is called Black Panther Wakanda Forever when it could have been called Wakanda Forever. And I think just about everyone who is even vaguely familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and maybe even hadn't seen the original Black Panther would know that Wakanda is Black Panther's country. So even if the movie was just called Wakanda Forever, people would know that it was a sequel or maybe even a spinoff to Black Panther. However, the fact that they included Black Panther, the, the name, in this film was not just for sequel's sake. You would probably presume that another Black Panther would emerge. And you would be correct. But for this film, King T'Challa's sister Shuri is given front and center um, attention, whereas in the original Black Panther, as you might have expected, Letitia Wright was a supporting character. But For any other actress, or for many other actresses, especially those that aren't as well known as Letitia Wright was before Black Panther came out, it might have been overwhelming for her to be front and center in this film, but she does an amazing job being the central figure in this movie, especially when things start going badly, not not because... Other parties or other countries try to steal the vibranium from Wakanda, but also because another potential villain emerges in an underwater creature by the name of Namor, who in this film is played by an actor I'm not too familiar with named Tenoch Huerta. And Namor is also known as Atlantis in the Marvel comics. But he is a character who can breathe underwater, kind of like Aquaman in DC. But he's also not so much of a hero as much as an anti-hero. And he is the mutant son of a human sea captain and a princess of the mythical undersea kingdom of Atlantis. And he is also, after this vibranium, him and also his blue-skinned, water-breathing gang of undersea creatures as well, who we later find out is his family. And I got to say that Namor himself, I don't exact. I wasn't exactly scared of him or worried about him, but when his blue-skinned water-breathing family began to take on his dirty work of taking vibranium, that's when he started to get really badass for me. But, of course, Wakanda won't let more take the vibranium without a fight and they have some very good soldiers including the the Captain Okoya who is played by Danae Guerrero also reprising her role from Black Panther and there are some other actresses in this film as well reprising their role from the original 2018 film including Florence Kasumba Michaela Coel, and also some other people who weren't soldiers like King Chala's love interest Nakia, who's played in this movie by Lupita Nyong'o, reprising her role as well. And there is, of course, their representative, Everett Ross, who is in the United States and is played by Martin Freeman. And there's a subplot going on with him as well in, in terms of his role in protecting the kingdom of Wakanda from other countries and other terrorists, stealing vibranium. There is a lot going on, but to this movie's credit, the the story is very balanced, and I think it had a good tonal consistency within it. And that's saying a lot, considering there are many supporting characters, many subplots, and I think they all wove together very well. This movie has a lot more subplots than than the original Black Panther film, but I liked the fact that it's still soldiered on even without Chadwick Boseman being in the center of the film, except for maybe the very beginning where they acknowledge that King Chawla has passed on, which I think was a very smart move on the writers and the actors part, not to mention the director, Ryan Coogler to have the series continue on without Chadwick Boseman. But the movie actually had a very good ceremonious tribute to Chadwick Boseman and K- King Chala just in the very beginning, and in the end, the film was very appropriately dedicated first and foremost to Chadwick Boseman, which was very ceremonious and very well-deserved. But, as this movie demonstrates, actors like Letitia Wright, Dene Guerrera, and Lupita Nyong'o, and that's just naming a few of them, show that the Black, the Black Panther part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not to mention the fate of Wakanda, is in very good hands for inevitable future Marvel Cinematic Universe films to come, not just the sequels to Black Panther. So for a For a year that had some rather lackluster MCU chapters to add into the series, Black Panther Wakanda Forever not only gets Black Panther back on track, but also, by extension, the MCU on track, which is why I give Black Panther Wakanda Forever my rating of a knockout. I don't know, to be honest with you, if this is better than Black Panther, but I do think it is a very worthy sequel or a spin-off depending on what you want to call it. And I enjoyed this film immensely. It is so far undeniably the best MCU movie of the year, probably even the best MCU movie over the last two years, although that probably rivals Spider-Man No Way Home and Shang-Chi The Legend of the Ten Rings. But it certainly far exceeds Eternals, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Thor Love and Thunder. And Black Panther Wakanda Forever will be the last MCU film to come out in 2022. But the MCU can thank this film as well as director and co-writer Ryan Coogler, not to mention the stellar cast for getting the MCU back on track, at least for now. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Estate, a film that was released in theaters on November 4th, 2022. I am, of course, a little bit late to the party on this one, but it doesn't seem like I really missed much on this film's opening weekend. The movie is about two sisters who live in New Orleans and have a struggling restaurant that they're trying to keep afloat who attempt... To win over their terminally ill, difficult-to-please aunt in hopes of becoming the beneficiaries of her wealthy estate, only to find the rest of her greedy family have the same idea. So the sisters in this case are two sisters by the name of Macy and Savannah, who are played by Tony Collette and Anna Faris, respectively. Their distant aunt is named Aunt Hilda, and she is played by Kathleen Turner, who seems to be one of the few people in Hollywood these days who ages the way that you would expect somebody else to age. And I was really looking forward to seeing this film because, of course, I love Toni Collette. She's great in just about everything she's been in, especially the film for which she should have received an Academy Award nomination, Hereditary. And it's been a while since I've seen her in a comedy, although she's no stranger to comedies, having broken ground with the somewhat divisive film Muriel's Wedding, which came out in 1995. that has been a while, but she's been in some comedies since then and been very good in comedies, like, for example, Little Miss Sunshine, where she was more of the straight woman, but she still held very well for herself. But in this film, you don't really get on the side of Macy and Savannah because it's not really established what kind of people they are. You can certainly understand that they are struggling to keep their business afloat when their restaurant is actually literally falling apart and they're driving around in a somewhat of a rusted vehicle. Not to mention that Macy has a boyfriend who's um, whose name is Jeff and he's played by Geechee Gamba who could be uh, transporting from Louisiana to Alaska for the money which he desperately needs, and he'll be there for about a year. So if Macy and Savannah can get these supposed millions from their rich Aunt Hilda, they would not only be on Easy Street, but Macy would also be able to keep Jeff in Louisiana with them. However, they have some very uh, greedy family members, including a very tacky Uncle Richard, who's played by David Duchovny, another good actor. But here he plays not only a schlub, but also somebody who is very sexually confused. In other words, he is hitting on various members of his family, including Macy and Savannah. And even though he's reminded of how immoral and how creepy that is, he still keeps doing it. There's also a cousin of theirs named Beatrice, who's played by Rosemary Dewitt, who is serving Aunt Hilda hand and foot as they are, uh, as she is also trying to get her share of the estate as well. And it's a, it's supposedly supposed to be that Aunt Hilda can't actually see what Beatrice is doing, but I think anybody who has eyes and ears can see what this uh, Beatrice character is doing. There's also a subplot where she has a husband who's a chef named James who's played by Ron Livingston, best known for being the lead in Office Space. And there's a couple of scenes where Beatrice is trying to get James to seduce Aunt Hilda romantically in a desperate ploy for her to sign over her estate to her and maybe some other relatives as well and the scenes where Ron Livingston is trying to seduce Kathleen Turner just don't work and they even feel icky. As a matter of fact, there's a lot, lots of parts in this movie that felt icky and didn't exactly feel genuinely funny. I think the primary reason for that is because you can't really relate to any of these characters. I can certainly relate to being broke, but I can't really relate to exploiting a dying family member's wishes to get their money. And it instantly reminded me, actually, of one of the last episodes of The Twilight Zone, which happened to be one of the creepiest, and the episode was called The Masks. And in that episode, there was this very rich man whose selfish and spoiled family wants to inherit his money as he's literally on his deathbed. But he has them play a game first where they put on these very creepy masks and he puts on a mask that looks like a skull that represents death. and the the way that episode actually ends is very unsettling, but you also know that the family sort of gets what they deserve. I realize I sort of spoiled that ending for you, but this movie is not nearly as creep uh, is, is not nearly as clever or as memorable as that Twilight Zone episode. It's also not supernatural, but it still could have been at least a little more memorable, but here you have great actors like Tony Collette, Rosemary DeWitt, and David Duchovny playing basically people you don't really know, in addition to people who are just, you don't really know where their morals lay, and they seem to be sort of shifting their morals in this movie every five minutes. In addition to that, the estate is just not funny. And I thought that Kathleen Turner, another great actor who I, I hope makes one great movie before she dies. In this film, she just kind of literally foams at the mouth and makes these disgusting noises that are supposed to be her dying in addition to getting a cheap laugh. And it just didn't really feel genuine. And also, there's another scene involving a prosthetic penis that was not only not funny, it was also very, very predictable. And the person who holds the prosthetic penis is, of course, caught with, granted, somebody else's pants down, or at least their fly down, but also their hands in, as you could imagine, a very precarious place. If you're laughing as I'm describing this to you, Trust me when I say it's not as funny on the big screen in this movie as it is me describing it. And I think that's part of the problem. And this movie is directed by and written by Dean Craig. And maybe this movie was funny on paper, but it just didn't really hit the mark the same way that Dean Craig's other film for which he wrote, Death at a Funeral, which in its uh, British form was directed by Frank Oz, the American version of the movie was directed by Neil LaBute, both those films somehow were better at the slapstick, and particularly around a dead relative, than the estate ever aspired to be. So maybe it was Dean Craig's direction... And maybe if this movie was directed by somebody else who is more experienced in directing, like Frank Oz, for example, I think Frank Oz would have brought the best out of this movie, and that's just one director. But as it stands, The Estate is a movie that tries really hard to be funny and fails on just about every account. The Estate is a flunk out, and when I saw this in theaters, I didn't laugh once. I may have chuckled here and there, but overall, this is a movie that tried way too hard to be funny the comic timing was off the characters were underdeveloped and this is probably one of the worst movies of the year at least so far at least it's up on my list as of now Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is My Father's Dragon. This is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on November 11th, 2022. It is a collaboration between Netflix Animation and Cartoon Saloon, in addition to some other production companies like Mockingbird Pictures and Parallel Films, but Cartoon Saloon is probably the most recognizable name besides Netflix in this production. For those of you who don't know, Cartoon Saloon is an Irish animation film studio, which is based in Kilkenny, Ireland. And they have produced and distributed such animated, sort of modern animated classics as The Secret of Kells, which is an amazing animated film, which was also nominated for an Academy Award For Best Animated Feature. It didn't win, but it's still worth a look. They also released, amongst their feature films, Song of the Sea, The Breadwinner, and Wolfwalkers. And My Father's Dragon is certainly in the same sort of animation style as Wolfwalkers and The Secret of Kells. And it is a very good animated film that is based on an excellent book of the same name, which I read several times when I was a kid, that book, as well as the sequels were written by Ruth, Ruth Stiles Gannett. And truthfully, like many book adaptations, this film is probably not as good as the book. And there are some sort of modern adaptation or rather some uh, modern additions to this book, which make it a bit, just a bit more dated than the story upon which it's based but I still enjoyed the film very much and I think taking sort of um, separating itself from the story upon which it's based if you're not familiar or you've never read My Father's Dragon you will enjoy this film a lot if you've read the book like I have you might be a bit disappointed, but I still appreciated this film for its story as well as, 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 as its animation style. Maybe not so much for its deviations from the book, but let me just give you a synopsis about what this film is about, not what the book is about. So the protagonist in this film is a young boy who is named Elmer Elevator, and he searches for a captive dragon on Wild Island, which is an island that is comprised of animals that can talk. They're not exactly anthropomorphic because other than the fact that they can talk and humans can understand them, or at least Elmer Elevator can, they still do things that other animals do. You know, walk on all fours and don't wear clothes and things like that. But as Elmer Elevator is searching for this dragon by the name of Boris, he finds much more than he could have ever anticipated. And as it turns out, the fate of the island depends on Elmer and Boris the dragon. And as it, as it also turns out, the dragon has wings but can't fly. He has to go through some sort of rite of passage in order to fly. And the movie has, of course, very many colorful characters. I think one of the the things that dates this film, one of the only things, is the dialogue. I felt like Elmer Elevator, who in this movie is voiced by a young actor by the name of Jacob Tremblay, who's been in movies like Room and is a very fine actor. But I thought his vernacular sounded a little too Gen Z. But there are some other... Uh, but other than that, th- that's probably the only thing that dates this movie. I'm not going to completely slam this film for just that dialogue. But I think th- the setting of the film is somewhat ambiguous. but when you see Elmer Elevator in, you know the real world on you know, when he's helping his mother with uh, her grocery business, You don't see any TVs or any cell phones, so the setting of the film is appropriately ambiguous. I just wish Elmer Elevator's dialogue was a bit stronger. But when he goes to this island and he meets up with Boris the Dragon, who's voiced by Gaten Matarazzo, I think the the magic of this film really comes about, and so much so that you might begin to forgive this film for its... Gen Z dialogue that it gives the young protagonist, especially when you consider that Elmer is supposed to be somebody's father, the narrator of this film, who refers to Elmer as her father. You never see that uh, narrator, but you don't really have to. But this film, I think, especially with the magic that I know that Cartoon Saloon gives its films is very evident here and it also is a very stellar cast. I don't know who Gaton Mazzaazzo actually actually I do know who he is. Forgive me. Uh, Ga- um, Gaetano Mazarado um, Matarazzo, excuse me, is best known for having played the role of Dustin Henderson in Stranger things. He's just not a household name but once you see his face you know exactly who he is but it's a testament to Gaton Ma- Matarazzo, that you hear his voice and you don't recognize him from Stranger Things, or at least I didn't. But there are some familiar voice actors in this film. Like, for example, there's a cat who leads Elmer Elevator to this wild island, and she's voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, who has a very familiar voice. There's also an antagonist in Saiwa the Gorilla, who's voiced by Ian McShane, who does an amazing villain voice, even though he's not technically the villain. There are also some good... Voice acting here by the likes of Diane Wiest, Rita Moreno, Chris O'Dowd, Judy Greer, Alan Cumming, Jackie Earl Haley, and others. But My Father's Dragon is a film that is certainly of Oscar caliber quality, and children will love this film. It's rated PG, but I think it actually could have been G-rated and and. I don't think anybody would have noticed, but some some for some reason the G rating is almost as much of a deterrent in the eyes of Hollywood producers as the NC17 rating, which it really shouldn't be. I think the G rating should make a comeback. I think that My Father's Dragon would have been the film to give the G rating its comeback. But besides my misgivings about the rating and some of the Gen Z dialogue, I really enjoyed My Father's Dragon, and My Father's Dragon gets my rating of a knockout. I enjoyed the book a lot when I was a kid, and I'm glad, actually, that My Father's Dragon didn't copy the the book word for word and subplot for subplot, but I would say the real magic is in the book, but My Father's Dragon, thanks to Cartoon Saloon, gave this story a lot more justice as a magical story than maybe any other American studio would have. And for that reason, I respect and really applaud My Father's Dragon for being the movie that it ultimately became. (laughs) ¶¶ Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Falling for Christmas, which is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on November 10th, 2022. This is, as you might imagine, a typical Christmas romantic comedy in which Hallmark has made their bread and butter. And originally, this was a genre for lifetime. And in fact, I think a lot of times when you see one of these cheesy TV movies, no matter on what channel you see it, whether whether it's Lifetime, Hallmark, GAC, or Netflix, Lifetime cornered the market for so long that you consider this kind of like a lifetime movie. But I think actually Hallmark has made more of a name for itself, considering it releases hundreds, literally hundreds of these kinds of movies. And Netflix started honing in on Hallmark's stronghold on the Christmas romantic comedy genre around 2016 or 2017, starting, I think, first and foremost with their first success, which was A Christmas Prince, which came out in 2017. And when I was hosting this show, it's kind of funny because the tweet that Netflix put out on Twitter about A Christmas Prince gave the TV movie a lot of publicity. They said something to the effect, and I can't exactly quote because I don't have the tweet, but they said about A Christmas Prince that some of their subscribers had literally been watching A Christmas Prince every day for about two weeks. And they ended it with a with a quote that made me laugh. They said, who hurt you? So... This made national news. The late night talk show host really jumped in on this tweet and it made me do something I didn't really think I would ever do. I got on this show and I actually reviewed a Christmas Prince and it, and I thought to myself, maybe this movie is better than I might have expected. I watched it and absolutely not it was not nearly as good as I expect or rather it was it was exactly the movie that I thought it was going to be. It was predictable, it was whitewashed and I kind of gave Netflix the benefit of the doubt thinking maybe just maybe considering they have released academy award nominated films that they would make it a bit more high caliber Than the Hallmark films. But A Christmas Prince was no exception, and getting back to the movie to which I'm reviewing right now, Falling for Christmas is also no exception. So this movie stars Lindsay Lohan as a hotel heiress who is not as obnoxious as Paris Hilton, but very much like the Hilton sisters, Sierra Belmont, Lindsay Lohan's character, uh, is very pampered and has had everything, including a career in her father's hotel business handed to her. But things change when she has a very obnoxious influencer boyfriend, whose name is Tad Fairchild, who's played by George Young, uh, proposed to her on a mountain ledge while she's wearing skis. And this is a very contrived way for... Lindsay Lohan to slide right off the mountain, and in a very risky move, she she catapults headfirst into a tree, and rather than dying or being paralyzed, she begins to experience amnesia. But her life is saved when a very charismatic inn owner, who owns a hotel that is not nearly as extensive as the uh, ski Resort Belmont Hotel, but his name is Jake Russell, the owner of this smaller inn, and he's played by Cord Overstreet, who very much like the Christmas Prince is a very handsome man. He has a precocious daughter named uh, Avi, who's played by Olivia Perez, and his wife has conveniently passed on. So once you learn that Sierra Belmont has no memory of her prior life as an hotel, a hotel heiress, her fiance Tad Fairchild is lost in the wilderness himself, and is of, and because he has no hotel, uh, excuse me, because he has no cell phone reception, he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he's even more lost than you would expect anybody to be lost in the woods to be. You know how this is going to go. This this is just as predictable as A Christmas Prince and every single Hallmark movie. As a matter of fact, this movie is very much like, I don't want to say eggnog, but it's like Humphrey Food. It's like ramen noodles. I tried to think of some sort of holiday equivalent to ramen noodles, but I don't exactly know. But like ramen noodles, this is a film that gets exactly what you would expect from the film, you know how the story's going to go, you know how it's going to end up, and there are really no surprises here. I'm kind of expecting Lindsay Lohan to make a comeback here and there, but, you know, it seems like she's changed from how she was doing in 2006, where her reputation became less for her acting, which, when she was in movies like, for example... Freaky Friday or Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. She was really good in those films, not to mention Mean Girls. She was excellent in that film as well. But unfortunately, the partying lifestyle deteriorated her acting career. She's still, of course, getting leads in roles in in movies like this. But if she is really committed to changing and I'm not sure exactly if she is because I don't exactly follow the tabloids, I think that a better film is out there for her. But this film, Falling for Christmas, is very predictable. I do somewhat commend Lindsay Lohan for giving this her all and not coming off like a complete burnout. But again, it is the typical Hallmark movie that you might expect. And you would think, Netflix has released some great films over the last decade. It's not just a TV movie service. Why, very much like HBO showing Sesame Street, it doesn't need to do this. Why does it do it? It's, of course, for money. <laughs> I I don't see any other reason behind this, but Falling for Christmas is exactly what you'd expect from a... Christmas Romantic Comedy, and I've seen better Christmas Romantic comedies from Netflix. One of the best ones I've seen, which altogether wasn't a great movie, was Operation Christmas Drop, but that's because it did something a little different. But even then, it has predictable moments. But Falling for Christmas is, in my book, a strikeout. It's not a terrible movie, and I do commend Lindsay Lohan for giving it her all. And Court Overstreet is, I guess, okay, but his character is very bland. He's supposed to be as charismatic as the script expects of him. And you know, the two of them are going to fall for each other in the end. And there's going to be a fallout because she regains her memory. And she's of course back in the high rise hotel, presumably in Aspen, Colorado or one of those high end skiing communities you know how this story is going to go. So, it's no surprise. This movie is just at just what you'd expect, but if you're expecting holiday comfort food, then there you go. Falling for Christmas will be just what you need. It's going to be easily digestible, but once once you see it, you're probably going to forget it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, or at least the first part of my final segment, which is What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of excuse me November... 13th through 18th, 2022, but full disclosure, I will not be doing my podcast for next weekend, November 19th, or the weekend after that, November 26th. And the reason I'm not doing my podcast is because I'm going to be on vacation. I'm going to be actually leaving Nashville and going back to my family in New England to spend Thanksgiving with them. I'm very excited about that, but the downside is, one, I don't get to spend time with my girlfriend, and number two, I don't get to spend time doing this show and reviewing movies for you. However, I will be telling you not only the movies that are going to be coming out the week of October 13th through 18th, but also the week of November 20th through 25th, and like... What What is typical of Thanksgiving weekend, a lot of the newest movies are coming out not on Friday, November 25th, but on Wednesday, November 23rd, trying to get some new movies in before heading to the kitchen. But I'm going to start with the week of November 13th through 18th first. And on November 16th, which is a Wednesday this year, the newest movie that's going to be coming out in theaters is a movie that's called Poker Face. This is a movie about a tech billionaire who hosts a high-stake poker game between friends. But the evening takes a turn when long-held secrets are revealed, an elaborate revenge plot unfolds, and thieves break in. This is something I really, really want to happen to Elon Musk, or maybe one of those other billionaires who are seemingly evil. Because, I don't know, Elon Musk has been, just to get off on a tangent here, I wanted to respect the guy for putting electric cars on the market, but then when he bought Twitter and he fired all those people and he also allowed some other people who had been kicked off Twitter to get back on, yeah, my respect for Elon Musk had been gradually decreasing. But my beliefs aside, this should be an interesting film. The billionaire in this film is actually played by Russell Crowe, and he's co-starring in this film along with... Liam Hemsworth, Lynn Gilmartin, and Ella Pataki, amongst other people. Oh, and RZA, uh from the Wu-Tang Clan also has a supporting role in this film. I don't know if this is a film that I will that will be coming out in the theater near me, but I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but not next week's show because I'll be off next week. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters is On November 18th, 2022, that's a Friday, there are a couple of big ones, really big ones. The first one, which is arguably the biggest, is a film that's called The Menu. And it is about a young couple who travels to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. This is a comedy horror thriller. So... I can only imagine it being a horror film, what the chef has prepared, that's the shocking surprise, which is probably not a shocking surprise to the audience, but I'm going gonna—I'm still going to go along with this because this movie has some fantastic actors in it. The lead in this movie is Anya Taylor-Joy, who has chosen her films relatively well over the last few years, but the other stars in the movie include Rafe Fiennes, Nicholas Holt, Amy... Carrero, John Leguizamo, Janet McTeer and Judith Light amongst other people. So a lot of really good actors in this film and I'm very interested to see it. And what's even more interesting is the fact that a lot of these characters don't have names. For instance, John Leguizamo is known as Movie Star. That is apparently his moniker in this film. What Movie Star? They they could have named him, you know, Johnny Bravo for all I care, but in any event, The Menu is a film that looks interesting. It's a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie, which I guarantee I will see, is a movie that's called She Said. This is a film that looks like this year's spotlight, and this particularly centers in on New York Times reporters Megan Twohy and Jody Kantor, who break one of the most important stories in a generation a story that helped launch the hashtag Me Too movement and shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. And yeah, this looks like a shattering film. Uh, of course, it's a film that uh, takes place about five or six years ago when this movie really, I don't know if it changed the world, but certainly changed Hollywood. The director of this film is Maria Schrader, and she has previously directed... uh, She's actually best known for her acting. In terms of directing, she's directed a few films. The one she directed before this is a movie that was called I'm Your Man, which in German was called Ich bin den Mensch, which I haven't actually seen. But this is probably her biggest, her highest profile film to date. And the stars of the film include Carrie Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, Patricia C- Clarkson, Andre Brower, Jennifer L., and Angela Yo, amongst other people. So this looks like a, a really uh, groundbreaking film. I don't know if it's going to be of the same caliber as other films about journalism like All the President's Men or Spotlight. It has a lot to live up to coming after Spotlight, I'll tell you that. Because some other films that were about journalists that broke groundbreaking stories that changed at least America, if not the world, have been dismissed by some critics, not necessarily me, as Spotlight ripoffs. But She Said is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 18th is a film that's called Taurus. And this is a film that does not look promising, particularly because one of the stars of the film is Megan Fox. Megan Fox is an actress I give I have given a hard time to over the course of my doing this show because I'm pretty convinced that Megan Fox does not want to be an actress. And she has been given so many opportunities to be a leading actress. In fact, she's taken those opportunities. But unfortunately, other than her beauty... She's not a good actress, and she, she also doesn't really want to be a good actress, at least you know from her uh, the work I've seen in films of hers like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. But Taurus follows the last days of a rising but problematic musician. So Megan Fox co-stars in this film along with Colson Baker, Ruby Rose, and Scoot McNary amongst other people. I don't know if this film is coming out of the theater near me. If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But the fact that it stars Megan Fox does not give me very high hopes for it. The final film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 18th, at least according to my records, is a movie that's called The Inspection. And this is a film about a young gay black man, rejected by his mother and with few options for his future, who decides to join the Marines doing whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would cast him aside. The movie stars Jeremy Pope, Gabrielle Union as his homophobic mother, which I'd be interested to see, Bokeem Woodbine, and Raul Castillo, amongst other actors. This is a film that has been on my What's Coming Up Next segment, but as I say, these are films that are subject to being released in theaters, not necessarily films that will be released in theaters. But if it's a movie that is uh, coming out in a theater near me, I might see it and let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you the movies that are coming out for the week of November 13th through 18th, 2022 in theaters and or on streaming, but primarily in theaters, I'm now going to get into the films that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of November 20th through 25th, i.e. Thanksgiving week, 2022. And I'm doing this for two reasons. Number one, some huge films are coming out this that week, particularly on November 23rd. And number two, I won't be here the week after uh, November 13th through 18th to review these films for you. But my guess is I will eventually review these films. So first and foremost, the biggest film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 23rd, i.e. the day after Thanksgiving, is the film The Fablemans. And The Fablemans is directed by none other than Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg's work ethic is absolutely incredible. He's doing this film after having directed West Side Story last year. But there are some years where Steven Spielberg comes out with two films. And I'm just going to say this very quickly. In 1993, that was his, his huge year because... He directed a film that was one of the highest-grossing films of all time and is still a modern-day classic, Jurassic Park. And he also directed a film that is not only one of the greatest movies of all time, but also a film that won Best Picture and won him his first Best Director Oscar, Schindler's List. So 1993 was the year that Steven Spielberg... Worked like a dog to put these two movies out, but he solidified himself as a prolific director because of that. So, The Fablemans is a drama, and it's Steven Spielberg getting back to his dramatic storytelling roots. And it's about... A man by the name of Sammy Fableman, who, growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. So this is Steven Spielberg's cinema verite, basically. Sammy Fableman is reputed to be based almost directly on Steven Spielberg himself, and Steven Spielberg not only directed this film, but he also co-wrote the film, Story and Screenplay, with Tony Kushner, and the actor who's playing young Sammy Fableman is uh, Gabriel LaBelle, who I don't exactly know, but the co-stars of this film include Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Judd Hirsch, and Seth Rogen. So we have some amazing actors in this film, and that's just the first five that I mentioned. But The Fablemans is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 23rd is a movie that's called Bones and All. This is a film that is about a young woman by the name of Marin, who's played by Taylor Russell, who learns how to survive on the margins of society. And judging from the poster, he's she's also in a relationship with a man by the name of Lee, who's played by Timothy Chalamet. And the other people who uh, co-act uh, in this film include Mark Rylance and Kendall Coffey, amongst other people. And with Timothy Chalamet as the love interest, you know that a lot of women are going to flock to see this film. But maybe it's not just a romantic drama. But I'm interested to see this film. And I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 23rd is a movie that's called Devotion. This is a war drama. And this movie is about a pair of U.S. Navy fighter pilots who risk their lives during the Korean War and become some of the Navy's most celebrated wingmen. The movie stars Glenn Powell, Jonathan Majors, Sarinda Swan, and Thomas Sadowski, amongst other people. This is a movie I probably will see, and I'll let you know what I I think on a future show. But the last movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 23rd is a movie that's called Strange World. This is the latest from Disney Animation, and is about the legendary Clades, who are a family of explorers whose differences threaten to topple their latest and most crucial mission. This movie looks like a very epic film, and it comes out in a year where there have been some exceptional animated films to which this has the potential to be added to that roster, but I don't exactly know, and I can't guarantee that this will be a huge film, or a great film, but the movie features the voice talents of Jake Gyllenhaal, Gabrielle Union, Alan Tudick, Dennis Quaid and Lucy Liu. But it's a film that looks promising and it's a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.